This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. A few months ago, I was invited to go up to Seattle and interview the women of the Pearl Jam crew. It turns out that women hold a huge variety of positions in the band's organization, from monitor engineer to production manager. I found it super inspiring, as well as fascinating, to hear how they each got their jobs and what their lives are like with a band that is often on the road half of any given year. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today we talk to some of the women of the Pearl Jam crew and reprise an interview I did with Mike McCready about his charitable work. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to some of the women of the Pearl Jam crew. Ladies, welcome to the future of what. Hi. Hi. Awesome. That was very cool. Okay. So this morning, it is Monday morning. There was a Temple of the Dog show last night. Everyone is a little tired, but I appreciate everyone showing up. And I wanted to just get started by asking everybody how they got involved with Pearl Jam slash Temple of the Dog. Slash Eddie Better. Karen? So my background sort of starts when I was in college and worked for Ani DeFranco at Righteous Babe Records back when I was 18. Long story short, decided to move to the West Coast and started working in the music industry here, mostly on the venue level. The music scene in Seattle is pretty small. So through that, I met a bunch of folks that worked with the 10 Club And I was hired on to help out with the avocado record back in 2006. Started as a temp, just stuffing envelopes with tickets for the tours around that album release. And then just never left. Well, I was working with Pearl Jam in 2000. And I was working at the time... I had just finished working for a lighting company. I had gone freelance and I had gotten an offer to come out on a PJ tour as a programmer and operator. And I did that tour with them and just clicked with everyone. And the next time they went out on tour, they offered me a shot at designing it. So I've been with them ever since as their designer and operator. And And you were living here in Seattle at the time? Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah, where I still live. You still live in Los Angeles? Yeah. So you yeah. just travel uh-huh. with the band? Great. Yeah. Liz? I started in 1994 as the receptionist. I used to be in a band in the early 90s. And so I liked performing and I liked the whole stage and everything that goes along with it. And I knew I was never going to be like a math major. So <laughs> I got my degree in fine arts and I got hired as a receptionist. And they took me on tour in 1996 and I loved it. I'm an army brat and it just clicked with me because you're in a different city every day and there's new people. And it's like, that's how I grew up. So it's perfect for me. And then I worked for other bands. And then I came back and started working for Pearl Jam in 1999 again. And then I just worked my way up. 
I always wanted to be the production manager because there aren't very many women that do this and it's a man's world and it was a challenge and it's really fun. Yeah. I'm going to get to you, but I want to quickly just say your story is particularly interesting because it means you came on fairly early in the game. So you've really gotten to see this whole organization grow. Yep. So how many people were working with Pearl Jam when you first were the receptionist? Um, There was like five of us. (laughs) And how many people are now on the crew? The crew is 48 people on my crew wow. for Pearl Jam. But then in our office, because we have our own compound, we like to do everything ourselves. So it was great. I got to learn pretty much everything. And now we have like 30 people that work in our warehouse. Wow. In addition to the 48 people? Yeah, the 48 people are just when we tour. Yikes. <laughs> this is a big operation. Yeah. It takes it's, a small village. Yeah, no doubt. So can you please tell us your story? I first met Pearl Jam when they were the opening band for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I started doing sound in 1986. I started by loading trucks. I learned everything on the job. I was the monitor engineer for Red Hot Chili Peppers. They were our support band. One of the support bands, Smashing Pumpkins, was our other band. I knew the road manager for Pearl Jam, and he asked me if I would mix them also. And I've stayed with them ever since. How'd you get into loading trucks? I met a sound guy at a Black Flag show. (laughs) Said I wanted to learn what he was doing. Didn't know what he was doing, but hung out after the show and started showing up and loading trucks. And Wow. Just organically got into it. Yeah. I love all these stories because it's, it's all stuff that actually isn't super woman heavy. These jobs that everybody's doing which is great. It's nice that you guys are, are in these positions of power and you've been doing it for such a long time. It's very inspiring. How did you get into lighting design? Because that's, I mean, there are women lighting designers, but not a ton. Yeah. Back when I started, there were not that many female LDs on the road, like doing bands and stuff. I mean, they were around, but not as many as there are today. It was a lot more common and is a lot more common to find women in theater, which is where I started. Mm -hmm. I went to a performing arts boarding school in Michigan, Interlock, and I got into technical theater there. I was there for three years and I always knew, like you couldn't specialize in lighting there. You you had a major, but I had to do everything. You know, we had to study scene design, lighting design, costume design. And by the time I was done there, I knew I wanted to specialize in lighting. So I went to CalArts after Interlock and got a degree in lighting and harbored this fantasy of getting into rock and roll and touring. But back then it was super hard to break in, especially as a woman. And I really had no idea how I was going to do it. And a lot of my male counterparts at school were getting breaks in the industry while I was still there. And there was just this, you know, a friend one day, one one year, he had spent a summer touring for the, this lighting company I worked with at the time after college. And he said, hey, Keely, you want to go on the road? And I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> yes, I want to go on the road. But I didn't want to admit it because I was so afraid of failure. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to put it out there how much I wanted it because I I didn't know if I could accomplish it. So anyway, I I got my foot in the door with this lighting company and they did everything. They did tours, they did industrial shows, television, and I just started like at a lowly position and worked my way up there pretty quickly. And that's how I got into the business. I think it's really fascinating because I was in bands for years and, you know, playing 
everywhere that you go and play, especially festivals though, because you see a lot more of the crew at, at festivals, it's like this wall of burly dudes in black and it's really intimidating. I mean, I, I remember being super intimidated at a lot of places where I would go as a band member. And, and sometimes, you know, you don't even want to ask the sound guy for help because it's so intimidating. You know, he's this like, he looks like a biker dude. He's all grizzled with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And so it is, it's really interesting to think as a woman to be able to get into that world and have it and actually be successful in that world. I think that's kind of a challenge, but I like it. It sounds like everybody here was into music, at least to some extent. And I think you have to have that love probably to push you to really want to succeed. I like it that you yeah. started a black flag show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that proves your love. It's better than a nine to five. Yeah. yeah, for sure. No doubt. No doubt. And you were in a band, Liz, so you toured. Yeah. Did you tour with your band? No, we were, but we played all the coffee shops in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> but then once you went on tour, you found out how much you loved touring. Yeah. It was, do you guys all feel that way? Do you love touring? Oh, yeah. yeah. Being yeah, paid absolutely. to travel is a, it's a great privilege and benefit. Yeah, oh, definitely. You don't get to see a lot, but it's cool. Well, it depends. You know, there you can fly to the other side of the planet and not see anything except for a van and a hotel and a gig. But, you know, you get days off on the road. and What you take advantage of, you know, taking advantage of the time you have. Right. And I think there's also, I mean, I don't know about you, for you guys, but for me, when I was touring in my band, as soon as we started touring, I was like, I could do this forever. I don't care. Just put me in a band. I don't care. In a van somewhere you know, we'll go and I just wake up somewhere new. There's something about that that was just so fun. Like that's sort of like tomorrow is a completely new day feeling. I don't know if you guys It's a fresh start that. every day. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's what I felt too. Your concept of time while on tour is very skewed as well. Yeah. Especially when you're traveling internationally and every couple of days you're in a different country with a different language, different customs. It's just like a new discovery every couple of days. And it just seems to go by much faster than that same period of time at home where you're in your regular daily routine. Right. And I think also having that shared goal, like the, sh- the show is what everyone's there for. And so you always are working towards that. And then, I don't know, for some reason, I feel like that's a real bonding thing. Do you guys feel like you're really bonded as a group? I think so. I think that our crew, because we try and keep the same people as much as we can, and I think we have a real bond with everyone and everyone enjoys each other's company. So it's like a family. Yeah, absolutely. The band has really, they've done a really good job of creating that sort of family culture with their crew. And so much so to the extent that even folks that are just coming into this as like a one-off gig working for a vendor that may be hired for the tour if the opportunity comes up again to work with Pearl Jam, it's one of their first, you know, first go-tos. Cause mm-hmm. And that says something because typically when PJ goes out, they don't go out for very long amounts of time. They'll go out on like a three-week run or a four-week run. And someone may get an offer for a six-month tour, but they'll still want to come back to PJ because it really is, it's, it's a pretty special group of people and the shows of course are exceptional and it all stems from the top. You want to be a part of it. Definitely. How has that changed over time, Liz? Cause I mean, the it norm- hasn't. Oh, I mean in terms of the amount of time on the road 
for the band. It hasn't really. I mean, have they always done sort of shorter they, runs. They've never taken really long, long runs. They do like they like to break it up. And now that they all have families, they're you know it's even. They'll do like three weeks at a time, and then they'll take three weeks off, and then they'll go back out for three weeks. Mm -hmm. So, which is great for all of us that have had kids along the way too. Yeah, their, their family lives have coincided with our family lives. That's yeah. awesome. So I don't think I could still do, you know, make myself available to do this if it wasn't for the fact they go out for short amounts of time. Right. So in general, how often? I mean, usually these things go by album cycle, you know, touring. But maybe for Pearl Jam, it's different because they're such a difference that type of band it's really whenever they want to tour they can sell tickets that's what i figured yeah, yeah. there's a lot of material to work from they have 25 years their, their <laughs> catalog is massive yeah no doubt so what is the what is the yearly like how often per year would you say you guys go out on tour? i'd say maybe half a year but not consecutively right three weeks four weeks at a time mm -hmm. great and so you guys all just you know, get the schedule. How how early do you get the schedule? How does that work for you guys? As soon as they confirm the booking, then I start working on it. Yeah. And in the U.S., it's a much, it feels like it's a much shorter window of time between confirming and going out on the road, whereas those Australian, South American, or European tours take a little bit more time to plan out. So it feels like we get a little bit longer of a heads up with those. Right. That's interesting because I'm, I'm just thinking about our culture and it's like having a wife who goes on the road or a partner, you know, <laughs> a female partner who goes on the road half a year, not the typical scenario for American families. So it's, it's pretty cool that you guys have good people at home, I assume, helping out. Well, with I married kids. a roadie. So <laughs> it helps. <laughs> yeah. See, you have to marry people who know <laughs> what you're going through. It really helps sort of weed out. <laughs> yeah. Not every, not, not all, you know, partners can handle that. So you, you learn pretty quickly early on and dating someone, whether they can hang with that, you know, lifestyle or not. But it's really, really important that your, you know, significant other be supportive of it. If not, it's just never going to work. Right.
That was Authentic Alien Perfume by Taiwan Housing Project. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. If you're like us, you love a good newsletter. As an artist, it's a great way to get in touch with your fans, bring them behind the scenes, and offer exclusive opportunities. Share your tips for creating a great newsletter by tweeting us at at KRSFOW and subscribe to ours. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to some of the women of the Pearl Jam crew. So how was it being pregnant on the road, I gotta ask? (laughs) I was pregnant three times on the road. Yeah, I was these ladies. (laughs) I'm pregnant now. (laughs) There you go. And Carrie... I don't know if that's a, how was it? It it was just, I didn't really have a choice. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. That was where my income was coming. I was also in the middle of a separation with my ex at the same time. So I just found out, you know, what my doctor said. He's like, I don't want you to change your lifestyle because you're used to doing this. But I want you to get your blood pressure monitored after every show. If it goes to this, I want you to go to emergency room. And um, I toured until I was about seven and a half months pregnant with twins. With twins? With twins. I didn't lift heavy gear, but... You were so funny. I was so funny? (laughs) You were so funny, though, when you were were so pregnant. When I was so pregnant. (laughs) Just wildly. Yeah. Uh, Funny like that. She's such a small lady. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I found out that I was pregnant about a week before leaving on a European tour, which is also very interesting because a lot of the the foods on the no-no list tend to be a lot of the foods that are offered in Europe. And um, being that it was like first trimester, I didn't want to, you know openly talk about it yet but sharing a tour bus with I think that was Europe so we probably had about 12 people on the bus and going through morning sickness on the bus it's kind of like an interesting little challenge oh my gosh and then um I think I did three tours throughout that pregnancy. The last one ended at the beginning of the third trimester. And at that point, the biggest challenge was where to hook my pass and my radio onto because I had no (laughs) belt loops on my maternity jeans. So that was that was my biggest challenge at that point. That's funny. (laughs) Uh, For me, with uh, with all three pregnancies, the the hardest tour I ever did pregnant was when we did a European festival run with these guys. And I was like six months pregnant. And it was my second pregnancy. So you're always bigger the second time, faster. And it was it was awful. <laughs> you know, the other tours weren't so bad when you're, you know, going into nice cush venues and, you know, the guys see you struggling with your suitcase and they'll pull them off the belts. But And they have real toilets. Yeah. <laughs> Festivals are hard under normal circumstances, oh, yeah. but when you're really pregnant and there's a lot of walking and for me, it's always overnighters, like super late nights when you do a festival run, because we go in as headliners, we get to go in the night before, after the last act and we'll work all night to daybreak to get our show up and running. Wow. And that's true of any festival we, we go to or like when we're in South America, same thing. So the schedule is really rigorous. Yeah. But I remember in my advance, and, and, and I'll run into production people to this day that will remember my advance because I would always advance because sometimes you'll get double level front of house towers. And I was like, there have to be stairs 
there can't be ladders and you have to provide a chair for me. <laughs> so no, no ladders and chairs. And a porta potty. Oh God, the <laughs> thought of being pregnant in a porta potty was just too hideous. <laughs> so when I meet women that are thinking about touring pregnant, I'm oh like, gosh. do it. It's fine. Just say no to a festival tour if you're really, really pregnant. Oh my gosh. That is hilarious. You know, I, I feel like America, I, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but like our medicalization of of pregnancy and and you know the the long laundry list of things that women shouldn't do just makes me think of because I ride horses competitively and my trainer she literally rode while pregnant until the week before she gave birth and I mean you know no doctor would okay that you know they're just like oh no that's completely dangerous but that's what she did that was her life and her job and it's like how can you tell someone don't do your job my doctor never Good. dissuaded me from. Yeah. Well, I guess the idea of falling off a horse. Yeah, is <laughs> it's a little. It's a little different going up to a three foot, you know, right. front of house platform and yeah, pressing some totally. buttons than getting on a horse. Yeah. So, how do you guys manage your lives when you're not on the road? Because the road schedule is so rigorous. Do you like you know completely change your schedule? Do you like sleep in or do you just sort of stick with the I schedule that you're used to? They they mandate my schedule. That's true. Kids will mandate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm working with the 10 club, whether on tour or off tour, as soon as that tour is over, I'm in the warehouse working nine to five, Monday through Friday. And it's kind of like a living two different kinds of lives. You know, you have your Monday through Friday, nine to five, and then you have like your roadie job. But it's, it's, for me, it's kind of awesome. It's the best of both worlds because I have a family at home. So you get to, balance the two but yeah like the day after the tour I'm just back in the office you know making runs to daycare and Mm -hmm. it just it just clicks back to normalcy for me Mm -hmm. do you guys have similar well I have a full-time job at home I I do a lot of television work and have a full-time gig on a late night show so that's like my nine-to-five job I'm super lucky to have it because it allows me to have the time for my family and my weekends free and evenings free. So I go back and do that. Just so like her, as soon as I'm done with the tour, the next day I'm back at the show. Mm-hmm. Well, Pearl Jam, they employ me full time. So I just go back to the office. And yeah. Start working on the next project. Right. I used to work for a sound company. So when I was off the road, I would be back in their shop. Then I had kids, so that was up six in the morning and in the car driving to school. And now I run an organization for women in audio, and that has turned into a full-time unpaid job. <laughs> so that's it's pretty much eight hours a day. Cool. Seven days a week. So, yeah. So if you ladies had some advice for young people, young ladies trying to get into the music business, what would you tell them to do? go for just it. do it don't let anybody tell you you can't you can't don't be intimidated by those big dudes in black no. Yeah. clothes <laughs> no yeah definitely you can do anything that they can do yeah but also and and but not to use the fact that you're a woman as an excuse no to don't sleep your way to the top well yeah and don't use it as a, a crutch you know like if, if you face adversity don't make that be your go-to excuse, you right. know, just power through and, and you're going to always encounter difficulties, struggles, you know, that maybe you wouldn't have if you were a guy, but how you choose to get through that and hold yourself, you know. Be classy. 
be classy and swear a lot. Have <laughs> it learn, learn to and drink hard. Learn know? to drink with the guys. Yeah, you have to work hard and you have to do your job well. I mean, that's all anyone can ask for, right? Yeah, we're pretty fortunate to be working for a band who isn't. You know, they're not hiring us based on our gender. Like, you know, there's a lot. This particular crew has probably more women working for it than your average, especially in lead positions. Just the fact that they are hiring based on abilities, not specifically gender, says a lot about them. And I think if you see the opportunity to surround, you see some good people and you have the opportunity to surround yourself by them, it'll help, you know, move on to the next thing. We, I think we're all pretty lucky to have made our path to, to Pearl Jam. We're kind of making lifelong careers of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which is really cool. What's your favorite thing about working for this band in particular? They're good humans and they they care and they walk their walk and they don't f- around. Yeah, they're they're the real deal. You know? Other bands that I've worked for, when I'm done with the tour, done working with them, don't really have a desire to go back. If something else has come up, great. This I will always do. Mm-hmm. Cause it's it's real. And they're, they're great musicians. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I've had an experience more recently where I was injured while on tour and had an emergency surgery and was taken out for a, a couple of weeks. And the way that the band really responded to that was incredibly supportive. And they really, that was a such a great example of how they take care of the people that take care of them. And you don't just get that with any employer. <laughs> no, that's true. I've worked with some real ass, and so I'm very cons- I'm very lucky <laughs> to work with these guys. Yeah, and to get to this point in your career too, you know, for me, I, I don't work for them full time. I, I choose to come out here, and and I do this because everything they've said, but also the shows are magic. Mm-hmm. They're really. There are very few shows like this out there. You know, they create such a cathartic experience over the course of three and a half hours. Their ability to connect with, you know, 60,000 people and make the person at the very opposite end of the stadium feel like they're right there, you know, just to pull them in. They're just, they're an incredible band. They're incredible musicians. And they use their, the way that they use what they've been given to raise awareness, to raise money quietly, you know, never in the spotlight for the the good that they do. To be associated with a group of people like that is just such a privilege. And uh, I don't think there's anyone that works for them that doesn't value that or take it for granted. I interviewed Mike for my show about his charitable work and the the band does so much for charity. It's fabulous. You never really hear about it. It's amazing. It's Which really, says a lot yeah. about them. Yeah, exactly. They're clearly not doing it for the accolades. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Well, ladies, thank you so much for coming today. And it's been a pleasure to have you with me on the future of what? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
That was Old Guy by Wimps. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Mike McCready of Pearl Jam. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What. Um, thank you, Portia. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. So I'm excited to talk to you. Our topic today is artists giving back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've talked to some people so far about sort of how they started realizing that they wanted to help other people when they got to a certain level. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you about sort of the process of that for you guys. I think uh, in terms of giving back with our band and uh, our individuals that are in this band, when we started to see some sort of success, we kind of felt, you know, at that time that this is a good measure of how we could give back because we have a lot, <laughs> you know, now we're, we're blessed with kind of an abundance of success early on. And, you know, there's so much out there that I, I, maybe growing up in the Northwest, we were, you know, aside from Eddie, but he's very, you know, in tune with kind of the similar values that we all have in terms of giving back to, you know, organizations that need help, whether it be like local social services or women's services, or it could be a, a myriad of many things. But it, it started right around the beginning of our career, I'd say, as when the record started selling. And I think, you know, we always kind of had a giving back kind of a feel to us anyways, but it just got bigger and bigger as our band kind of got bigger. Does that make sense? I don't know if that sounds like Absolutely. But and yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally true. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm old, old enough to have lived through the beginning of, of your band. And, and that really was a time, you know, people who didn't necessarily live through that time won't have as visceral an, an experience of it. I mean, we were coming out of the 80s when things were very glam, things were very like, you know, yeah. big hair. And, and to have, you know, bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, which were like, people wearing their, you know, regular street clothes and just playing great yeah. rock. You know, it was a real sea change and it really did feel closer. You know, it was it was a very punk thing. You know, in Olympia, I'm not from Olympia, but my husband started the record label Kill Rock Stars in Olympia. So it was like Bikini Kill cool. and Unwound and, you know, sure. these bands that were really just like, you know, local people making things happen it felt very personal. You know, it felt very like, yes, you are a real person and yes, you do have, you know, you're not this removed rock star. Yeah. Well, I think it, in in terms of that value system, in terms of the Seattle bands that had come out at that time, much like the Olympia bands, I'm guessing, was that it was a do-it-yourself kind of thing. Growing up in the 80s in Seattle, there was not a lot of major bands that would kind of, I mean, there were some, but a lot of bands would pass over Seattle. They'd go from Portland directly to Vancouver. And so, you know, we missed a lot of stuff. And, you know, we were aware of things there, but you kind of had to put on your own shows. There wasn't a ton of places to play. The city looked down on it. You had to have a million dollar insurance policy. It was insane. The kind of silly hoops you had to jump through. With my, I had a little band called Shadow. We were a metal band out of there. And so it was like that. And then Green River, of course, and then all those bands. They, you know, everybody had to put on their own shows, you know, and that was, that was maybe how we got to know each other and got to like kind of support each other, maybe instead of, you know, there's a healthy competition in terms of the bands. I'm not talking about the giving back necessarily, but we would, you know, we'd take care of each other and play and play on each other's shows, go to each other's parties and stuff because it was so small. Yeah. But I, and I think that, you know, growing up in the Northwest, whether it's Olympia, Portland, or Seattle, you, you're attuned 
to the environment and like, well, maybe we should do something about the, the Puget Sound being cleaned up or, you know, social services in, in downtown Seattle for the homeless or Mary's Place or anything like that. You, you're kind of aware of those things, I, I would, I, I guess, more so. You know, in terms of the bands that were coming out of the 80s and stuff, that was, you know, there was a different, that was a different thing. It was more of excess and, you know, how much can you spend and how crazy can you get? And, you know, I, I, and, and that didn't, that wasn't the case with the bands that came out of the Northwest, I believe. I think you're totally right. And it's so funny to hear you say that there used to be a time when Seattle was not a destination for bands to play oh, because true. the city made it difficult. But it's so crazy. Nowadays, everyone's like, oh, my God, Seattle, you know, like, ah. Oh music mecca it, isn't that funny for sure? <laughs> i mean when i think of just to, not to harp on that too long I, when i think about there was always the, there was the blue laws or whatever you couldn't the all ages shows were basically impossible to put on in seattle unless you had a million dollar insurance policy and i forget how you even got that and then you have to rent two cops this was like an 81 or 82 um and to, to play unless you had a kind of a promoter which there weren't a lot of them at the time and you couldn't you couldn't drink and be in the club at the same time as you could in Portland, God. you know what I mean. You could have a, or in LA, you could have a a, a wristband. If you're 18, you can and you could be in a bar. Isn't that nuts? You couldn't do that in Seattle forever. You still can't do it, actually. Come to think of it. So many things have grown out of there. I mean, like you're saying about activism, it's a very activist town. You know, with the Vera Project starting and the, yeah. overturning the teen dance ordinance, and just so much has happened. The teen dance ordinance. I remember when that came along. <laughs> Great. Like, yeah. what is it, the 50s? Like, what? <laughs> it was Footloose. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right, though. Vera is a, you know, was an antidote to that, you know, or, or an outcropping of that. And it showed that the city of Seattle or whoever that was against all that, like, look, at people can put on these all ages shows and be respectful and or, or whatever, or f- being respectful, but, you know, actually just do it because they want to do it, you know. Exactly. And, and that was that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. To see that 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 happened and which happened in, in, in Olympia, too. I mean, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't live there in the actual, you know, heyday of the very early 90s when everything was kind of going down. But it has always been an incredibly supportive scene. You know, I mean, really, mm-hmm. I remember when the kids from the gossip, you know, who, who eventually became the gossip moved to. Olympia just because they loved Bikini Kill, just because they loved, you know, certain bands that were from there. And they were like, yeah, and they were like 17 years old. And they were like, we're going there because that's going to be amazing. That's awesome that that was a destination. It's such a, (laughs) just a small place, you know. From Arkansas. Can you imagine? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That would be a big, that would be a big city for Arkansas. You know what I mean? In terms of. Totally. Well, then, you know, Slater Kinney was out of there. And Mm -hmm. certainly that was, you know, a a large draw to it. Imagine Bikini Kill. Seven Year Bitch, not from there. Are they they from there? I'm pretty sure they're from New York. I think so. Are they really? I think so. Uh, You might be right. I'm, I'm, I can't really remember. I just remember when I was in bands in New York, I used to see them wandering around the streets, which doesn't mean they okay. started there, but I what think band were you? I was in a band called the Hissy Fits in the 90s and 2000s. Okay. All right. Pop cool. punk band out of New York. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Can I find any stuff on it on, online? Or? I, you know, I think so. I'm not totally sure. We did have two albums, so I haven't really oh, cool. kept up with that. Maybe the Maybe we're on iTunes. That's a good question. Mike, you're going to make me go yeah. look. <laughs> okay, I have no I'll idea. Look myself. 
That was Been a Long Time Cousin by Hella. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. Buying merch from your favorite band is a great way to support them, but with so many bootleg products online, how do you know your money is going to the artists you love? Whether it's a t-shirt or a patch, your purchase should be officially licensed. Rockabilia.com carries one of the largest selections of official music merchandise in the world. Check out their store at rockabilia.com and get 15% off with code PCFutureofWhat. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Mike McCready of Pearl Jam. Anyway, so yes, I agree with you that I think the Northwest really did have a have a different kind of a feel to it. It had a supportive, you know, sort of community feel. And so you're right. It's not shocking to, to think that artists from the Northwest would be, you know, first in line to be giving back. So the Vitology Foundation that you guys started mm-hmm. seems really cool. And you guys do a lot of different things, right? Yeah, it's a uh, how that started. I'm, it, it's going to be a little bit hard for me to explain, but I, I wanted to. I would love to give it the best explanation I can try to, but um, it it was basically, you know, one to $2 off of every ticket we would sell at our shows. We would donate to, and we would have meetings and and say, Hey, this organization needs it. You know, Treehouse, for an example, for kids that are in Seattle that need to get, you know, free clothes and free kind of uh, school supplies and and stuff like that five times a year. So that's a good example of where we wanted to, to give some stuff. That was kind of my thing. And Jeff's was skate parks and uh, building skate parks all around and Native American reservations. And Stones uh, is very much parts of Conservation International, I think is one of his. And so at any rate, it, it morphed from us kind of voting on what we wanted to give it to, to splitting it five ways in terms of our band, maybe six ways now with our manager of like, okay, let's, let's put on $3 extra per ticket, two to $3, and then split that five ways. And then we can choose which, ones we can give to right now. And that was, that kind of was an easier way to do it. We also did that kind of around the United States when we play, we played locally and at different shows and, and find uh, organizations that were maybe in Cleveland and they were growing, they're farming on the roofs, rooftops of Cleveland and like little, little grassroots organizations. We would donate some of the ticket sales from that, you know, those places when we were in those places. Mm. But Vitology now is primarily kind of the ones that the individual in the band want to give to. Awesome. It also says on the website that you can make a request for a grant. So there must be that option to some extent. Yeah, yeah. And and that would go through Nicole Vandenberg. And we vet all those organizations and the requests to see if they're, you know, legitimate and if they're of, you know, food. If we're into it. And, and Nicole will send that out and we'll all look at them and go, oh, yeah, this is a cool one. Let's, let's do that. And Stone, uh, there's one called Emergency Services, which is downtown, which is, takes care of homeless people just immediately on the street or any kind of thing that's going on in the street. No questions asked. And that's a pretty cool one, too. So mine's a Crohn's and Clytus Foundation. Some of it, I'm forgetting what they are right now. And I, they're all kind of, I have to look at the sheet again. But we just, we figure it out every year, like what we want to give to. Oh, so they can change every year? Uh, they could, yes. Oh, wow. Or they can be added to or, oh, great. you know, yeah. That's awesome. It's not, it's, not written in, it's not written in stone. It's kind of, it's malleable cool. in terms of what needs help. It's a growing kind of organization or organism. Right. Itself, it's college. like an amoeba, right? It's like sprawling. Yeah, hopefully amoeba of good. <laughs> an amoeba of goodness. <laughs> I love that. So I am friends with Tim Bierman. He and I are on the Grammys oh. board, the Pacific Northwest okay. chapter. He is mm-hmm. rad. I love that guy. Yeah. He's a good dude, yeah. And I interviewed him 
like at the like the first episode of this radio show like a year ago or more mm-hmm. about his job because he's got a really interesting job running your fan club. Yeah. And your fan club in general has is fascinating because there's so much that you guys do just for fans. And I think that's a really cool aspect of giving back too. Oh, yeah, I of course I, I feel like that that that's that's part of the you know the ethos or if, if lack of a better term of you know giving back that we were talking about earlier to us to outside organizations but within Pearl Jam organizations and or sorry within our fan club and access to tickets access to sales of things and you know to to front row tickets to I'm sure can explain more of it but we we're, we're very you know we're all fans of bands so we you know we like things like that growing up when we were spending seven dollars for a ticket you'd want to. Or or buy a record that had something cool in it. You know, it's, you always want a little bit of extra, but you want to kind of look out for the fan because, you know, ultimately they're going to come back and they're what pay your bills and and you want to you want to be as not necessarily as accessible, but maybe you know want want them to have the best experience possible. I guess, and that's that's kind of how we look at it, and and we make a big deal about it, and that was. That's a, that's, that's a thing that we talk about a lot. It's like, well, what should we do this year for, for the fan club? Or what, what do you think they would want? Or, you know, we, we second guess it or we third guess it or we talk to Tim about it and we listen to fans and what they want too. So it's, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that have come out of the, the fan club in terms of there's, there's these, these small organizations. There's one called the wishlist organization, which is run by this woman named Laura Trafton and some of her friends. And they're not directly associated with Pearl Jam, but they have come up through the, the ranks of the fans and they will have little pre-parties around the United States while we're playing. They've done that just of their own thing. So in terms of the fans, they're very, pro, our friends are very proactive in wanting to help people just, and just go out and do it, you know, and we don't have to ask them. And it's, it's kind of interesting to see that whole thing arrive. There's a thing called team McCready. I think that has done some stuff that so has done that. So, it, but the wish list is one of the bigger ones, but again, that's of their own, that they came up, that came up they're out of their own enthusiasm. That's so great. And I mean, I like that because it, it, imp- it implies that you guys are sort of spreading that just through your own, you know, it's like you guys are doing good works. Your fans are picking up on that. They're doing good works. I mean, I love that. That's, that makes it so worth it. I mean, I always say this business is a tough business because, you know, when you're starting out as a young artist, mm-hmm. you just are thinking about like, oh, you know, I wish that someday I could make a dollar doing this. Like, I just want to put out the song because I love songwriting. But I always say we're actually in the business. I mean, if I'm doing my job right, we're in the business of creating career artists. So it's so nice to talk to a career artist who like, you got to do this your whole life, but you are a music fan and you are like someone who loved to oh. you know, listen to music and go to clubs and all that stuff that everybody loves to do, you know? So you're a fan too. I always have been. I still am. I go to record stores and now I'm going to look up his sets and figure out what that's all about. And, you know, I'm going to probably go look for your vinyl. And so I, <laughs> I do all that's, I'm, I'm serious. I, I'm into, I love to find, the thing about me is I get caught in the, I get caught in the eighties and the nineties in terms of like, in, in, in the, sorry, seventies, eighties, nineties in terms of music. And I, I get stuck in that. And then I need to know what's going on these days pretty much. I mean, I, I know a lot of bands now, like Black Rebel, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and things like that, but I get caught in a thing where I need to get out of it. I don't know why. I'm going on a tangent right now, but um, <laughs> I, I get caught in like listening to certain music and then kind of don't. I, I'll like all new wave for you know a year, and it's like I got to just I have to expand my horizons sometimes. So I like to hear about new bands. 
Cool. Even if they're, you know, old. I don't know where I'm going with that. But, uh. <laughs> Even if they're old. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike McCready, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, no worries, Portia. Thank you so much. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Taiwan Housing Project, Wimps, Hella, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.